Hello. This is the Fight Back Podcast, hosted by exercise scientist Georgia Very. Here, you'll find a series of honest conversations about martial arts and mental health. My guests and I explore the statement that every martial artist has heard. Martial arts saved me. How and why do combat sports save people? Listen to find out. Hey there, Conscious Combat Soul. What, you? Yes, I'm talking to you. If you listen to this podcast, then you are a human being who loves combat and wants to be conscious about the way that you're doing it. You're interested in being more trauma-informed, more inclusive, and more ethical in the way that you teach and participate in martial arts and combat sports. And that's why I would like to invite you specifically to join our new group, the Conscious Combat Club. We're on Facebook, and there's an emailing newsletter that you can sign up for, the details for both of which are in the show notes here. But now, let's get to today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Fight Back podcast. We have a super exciting episode today. I am here with Dr. Jamie Marriage and Anna Perkle, and they are clinical counsellors, trauma experts, and authors of this brand new book called Transforming Trauma Through Jiu-Jitsu. They're both <laughs> jiu-jitsu practitioners themselves, which is like, for me, having jiu-jitsu practitioners who are trauma experts who are also survivors themselves, the combination of that knowledge is just, I'm not sure how we're going to fit this into one episode, but we're going to do our best. So first and foremost, I would like to put the floor to both of you one at a time. Can you please do a more apt introduction of yourselves? Who are you? Where do you come from? And what brings you to the point of writing this book? Well, the first thing I have to say is we're excited to be on a podcast because we actually met via a podcast. Uh, About five years ago, I was speaking on a trauma podcast about how much jujitsu practice was transforming my life. And somebody, one of Anna's folks in her network shared it with her and said, you have to listen to this. And then, uh, so I'm based in Ohio in the US, Anna's based in California in the US and Anna I still remember the voicemail she left me. And I said, I have to talk to this woman because uh, we're both clinical, like you said, clinical counselors, uh, trauma specialists and and survivors and have found that this art just has transformed our experiences. So yeah, I mean, my my survivor story is like many other survivor stories. I, I came out of childhood and young adulthood just riddled with negative cognitions and fear of the world. and. Uh, but I still managed to get sober and well anyway, and I uh, engaged in a variety of uh, various therapeutic methods as a client over the years and then became a counselor myself to pay it forward, so to speak. Uh, I'm a trainer in a method called EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. I'm an expressive arts therapist, yet there's something about jujitsu when it entered my life over five years ago that just filled a lot of the missing link for me. Uh, And this is also having a quite an extensive embodied practice as a yogi, as a dancer. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk more about what what jujitsu did for me. So I'll pass it over to Anna. Um, Yes, I also remember that message I left kind of intimidated um, because I looked Jamie up online and went, wow, this is a this is a giant in the therapeutic field. I was like, but I'm going to leave her a message because I really love what I saw in that video. Um, I am a marital family therapist in California. I'm a licensed advanced alcohol and drug abuse counselor and a registered art therapist. 
And what brought me to jujitsu was, um, at least in the United States, the statistics are that uh, there's a good chance you'll get assaulted as a female in college. And I'm always preparing all my adolescent clients for the world. And so I'm always searching for the greatest self-defense tools out there so that I can send them, you know, try this one, this one, or this one. So that's how I ended up in jujitsu. Um, and I think something really special happened even in that first lesson. I realized this is different because I had definitely done other martial arts and lots of other self-defense classes that I love, by the way. I love my striking arts and I love all of those as well. Um, but one of the things that I found immediately special about jujitsu was the spectrum of techniques that were available to me from the most benign, beautiful things of like a wrist release, right? And somebody's grabbing me um, that I just felt such a love of it immediately that I don't have to hurt somebody to stay safe necessarily. And that was new to me because, you know, I was used to the self-defense courses with groin strikes and eye gouges. And, and, you know, a lot of times our assaults are done by people that uh, we know. And so the chances of doing that was slim. So anyway, I fell in love day one. Thank you so much. Let's dig more into that. It segues perfectly. What is it about jujitsu that makes it a valuable adjunctive treatment tool for trauma? Well, like we emphasize in the book, and any jujitsu practitioner or player would know this, but for other martial artists or those who are listening more generally, let's break down this idea of leverage. So leverage is, is essentially, as I at least try to explain it, it's more the idea of how you move your body, uh, how you place your body instead of necessarily having brute strength or needing to apply violence to get out of a situation. So I know when I first went to a, a jujitsu-based self-defense class, trap and roll was the first thing we had learned. And uh, essentially it's placing your legs and arms in a certain way, but then doing what in yoga is known as a bridge pose, just moving your hips up to get someone off of you. And even though that first self-defense class I went to was a bit terrifying for me for some other reasons, I was drawn by this whole, oh, it's more about how you move the body instead of thinking you necessarily have to be a certain way looking with your body or a certain strength exuded by your body. Um, I'm, it's such a big question. I struggle for, you know, which parts to share with you. Um, you know, again, being a specialist in trauma and recovery from trauma, uh, we store memories in our bodies and we have a story, you know, not only written in our brain, but in our bodies, we have muscle memory. And, you know, I struggled for many years as a talk therapist because I knew that, you know, yes, we have to be able to talk about it and review our traumas in that way, but that something was missing, um, that there, you know, my body wasn't having its chance to process. And, um, and one of the beautiful things about jujitsu is, is now you can rewrite the story, right? You can, you have answers for the story, you have different options. And so I think the nightmares that a lot of trauma survivors have, you know, their, their brains are going over and over. Like, how could I have done this different? How could I have made this situation different? And now they get to lay down at night and go, I have some ideas about that. <laughs> I have some ways to complete this story. And my body does too. Um, and it's just, it's incredible. You know, I mean, imagine the person sort of being held down on the ground that might've gotten held down on the ground at some point. Um, and then all that information comes flooding and they're triggered, but in an instant you have them flipped 
and now you're in control. And then you do that over and over and over and over again. And so you're rewriting that story that no, it's okay. Like I, I might be safe in this world, but then opens up all kinds of things for trauma survivors. Cause you know, they tend to of course start to restrict their life because they're afraid of things. Right. And then as you're not afraid, all kinds of doors start opening up again. It's just incredible. It absolutely is. You know, it made me think of a reel I saw recently, which was basically conveying the message that society tells us, oh, you're not confident, just be confident, right? Just think confident as if that's possible, that we don't need experiences in order to change our perception of ourselves, that we can just think our way through it and think positively and just, you know, change your narrative, change your narrative without having some sort of experience. And, you know, even for me, jujitsu is wonderful because you get to go at high intensities, you know, gradually building up over time, but at high intensities experiencing that that's possible. Um, and, and it is difficult in striking to feel what it is like to be in that scenario without going to what is quite the extreme. I've done it, but it is the extreme of stepping in <laughs> yeah. the ring and having a fight with somebody, you know, you get to have that day in and day out without significant risk of injury. Like it really does wonderfully lend itself as an experiential way to build confidence. And, yeah. and the key here, and I really love what you're saying, Georgia, is that the body has to learn a new story. The body has to learn a new message in order to really heal the imprint that was left on the body. And that was something I remember about when I started, because as I share in the book, I, I really needed to take private lessons at first. I had the privilege to be able to do that, to engage, because I was very petrified the first two classes I went to. It was first was more of a women's-based self-defense class, even though it was jujitsu. And the second one was was a more general jujitsu class with a different teacher. And I I knew there was something about him that would be the one who would really help me through this. He was different, just different enough. And that's Micah, who I talk about in the book. But I knew to really be sold on this, I needed some more private interaction where I could tell him where things were coming up for me and all of that. But I remember even within two or three lessons, I just loved the way my body felt after a training session. There was an energy, there was a zeal really moving through it that I, even with yoga practice and other exercise I've done, I've never felt anything quite like that. And so I knew something special was going on in the body-mind complex. It's one of the things I love about working on this book with you, Jamie, is that we have a lot of things in common, but then what we don't have in common sort of perfectly complements. Um, because, you know, in those situations where you were petrified, I was almost, I do the opposite, which also can be an extreme of walking up to the biggest guy in the room, come on, let's do this. <laughs> um, you know, and that's, that can be reckless and I have the herniated disc to prove it. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, it, that has its own set of problems as well. And, you know, learning, especially, you know, at age 50 of trying to like navigate, I want to be in this game for the long run here um, and, and how to um, not go to extremes. You mentioned a second ago, even sort of being in the ring. And um, when I tested uh, with Henner Gracie in my belt test, one of the things I had said to him that I don't talk about often was I didn't want to test with Eve Gracie because I was afraid I might hit her. And I didn't want to hit anybody. And, you know, if I, if I was triggered and he's like, I don't want you to hit her either. <laughs> um, and, and actually in the part of the test where I was triggered, I did start hitting at him. 
I mean, luckily it's Henner, so he was fine. <laughs> um, but, you know, I just, again, I love the fact that you and Jamie have these particular differences because I feel like they are perfect in sort of covering both aspects of what mm -hmm. could happen to somebody, whether it be the frightened or the super aggressive, violent, like not knowing kind of thing too. And I think that's a demonstration of the difference between fight, flight, and freeze as potential trauma responses, right? Exactly. And not even just that, even if you think about beyond trauma, and if we even step away from thinking that the trauma is exceedingly prevalent, most people who maybe don't think have experiences with trauma likely statistically have experiences with trauma. And that's not them thinking about how many of those are drawn to martial arts, whether they do it consciously or not. So within a school, what I love about this book is that even if you weren't specifically thinking, I want to be trauma informed, if you were a jujitsu practitioner thinking, how can I be a more effective teacher? You could follow a lot of these principles and you would literally be a much more effective teacher for absolutely everybody because we all learn better when we're you know, within our growth zone, which that scale that you presented in the book, I absolutely love that. I am going to introduce that at our school for trauma-informed kickboxing as a poster on the wall. None of my clients know this yet. We haven't really spoken about it, but I'm going to trial it because I love it so much. I think this idea is just so, so needed in a sport which is very, very close combat, um, close contact, you know, high risk for injury if not done correctly. And yet we oftentimes rely on implicit consent rather than explicitly saying, this is where I'm at and this is what I need. And I think the first step to that is having an awareness of where you're at uh, within your window of tolerance. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit more. There's much more detail and example within the book, but just a bit of an overview about what it's like for practitioners and jujitsu players to think about scaling themselves on a zero to 10. I think what might be helpful is to first explain what a window of tolerance is, because some folks outside a trauma world might not be too familiar with that. And then I'll bat it over to Anna to talk about this zero to 10. So window of tolerance is a model that was introduced by a, a neuropsychiatrist named Dan Siegel. And it's this idea of that, that zone or that sweet spot where you can safely practice, still be challenged potentially, but safely practice. And if you're above your window of tolerance, there's, there's too much adrenaline, too much activation. You can be uh, susceptible to that fight flight we were talking about. If you're below your window of tolerance, that's where the freeze, the shutdown, more the dissociative responses can happen. So a lot of people come into any kind of embodied practice or trauma healing with what would be called a very narrow window of tolerance, that, that there's not really a lot that can be tolerated to use the name of the model. But the hope is that with skill development, with practice, with time, you can widen that, that window to be able to practice more, tolerate more safely. So I think growth zone could be a good, good parallel to that. And Anna, you could talk a bit about the zero to 10 and how that fits in. So the zero to 10 uh, comes from something called a subjective unit of distress that a lot of clinicians lose to try to understand where people are at. I mean, it's just like walking into a hospital and let's say, how much pain are you in? 10 is excruciating and zero is totally 
you know, at ease. Um, and, you know, zero, one, two, three is best case scenario. And who's at zero, please wake up in the morning, have to deal with <laughs> gravity and traffic, you know, <laughs> we're all at one, two, three, best case scenario. And then four, five, six, you're starting to lift the weight, you're getting uncomfortable. And that's where the growth is, right? It's somewhere in there. Seven's kind of a boundary because a lot of the tools that we can teach our clients um, to help regulate themselves don't work as well when we're now in eight, nine, 10, right? Because, you know, we've shifted blood from our frontal lobe away and we're now in our limbic brain. And so a lot of the words and techniques we can use become less effective up there. Um, and so, yeah, you know, we really want to reserve those higher numbers for, you know, the true emergency where the adrenaline is needed. And, and yeah, just adding to this sort of window of tolerance, one of the principles is becoming comfortable in the uncomfortable, right? Um, and, and I would take it a step further. Not only do we work on being, you know, comfortable in the uncomfortable and expanding that tolerance, I mean, thinking maybe it's a uniquely Brazilian thing they brought to it, but we're also wanting to be even playful in that place, right? A whole next level. Not only am I comfortable in the discomfort, I now find it fun. Right. And so then our larger life problems all start to begin to shrink, too, because, you know, if I can handle this discomfort over here on the mats, then I might be capable of handling a lot more discomfort in other places, too. Yep. Yes, I love it. And I again love it as a tool for everybody. Like we're going to learn best when we're inside our window of tolerance as well, too. It's not just that it's difficult to ground yourself. It's also difficult to take in your information, to store that in your nervous system as a motor pattern, which you could then execute the next time you step back on the mat. Um, and so for everybody who's experiencing training or coaching other people, making sure that they are sort of in that zone is is so, so critical. So, and I really loved the idea of, you know, just checking in with a number is something that's super simple. Um, it's really doable. It makes pretty quick sense to somebody to pick it up and it can have immediate um, application. For example, I had a client recently say to me, Georgia, you talk about, you know, working within what feels like intensity for me. She's like, I've never thought about that because I just always push myself to the absolute maximum, maybe more like you, Anna, mm. right? That kind of a personality. And she said, I've been, you know, we've been working with my therapist and I've been and working towards trying to get an idea for what does that mean and she goes can you tell me what intensity actually is and I said oh, such an interesting question um yes. and I said let's think about it maybe we could put a number and we started to think about where we would put numbers and I did like in the way the book you said you know what might be a four for one person could be a seven for someone else and and that is one of the difficulties with scaling but I said think about for you what would be a number that's a bit too much and then we could go just to below that you know there's so much to be gained from working within our window of tolerance not outside our window so even what feels like too much then a little bit less um but now I have this really clear framework that I can take to her and say I know we were speaking about this have you been going with it also maybe this is something that we start to try and I'm gonna slap it on the wall as well too so it's there so <laughs> we can remember to keep bringing it up I really do love it it's awesome Thank you. It makes me think about even, um, you know, separate from even the jujitsu discussion, but that, you know, not just for instructors, but for parents as well, you know, and, and, you know, my daily discussions on parents and parenting their children and, 
you know, is it okay to yell at them or scream at them and things like that? And I'm like, well, if their brain is an eight, nine, 10, they're not learning anything but fear in that moment. They didn't hear your words mm -hmm. kind of thing. So a lot of these principles, I feel like they're just, they're, it's not just jujitsu. <laughs> these are like life lessons, you know, for all of us. And I, I find a lot of my clients and my fellow practitioners at Gracie, like we're taking these principles and applying them all over the place. It's just really incredible. Wonderful. Let's talk about trauma-informed jujitsu. I want to ask the big question, and I know it's not really within the scope of a podcast for us to explain what is trauma-informed jujitsu because there are so many facets of it. But let's give everyone a bit of an overview. What does it mean to be trauma-informed in jujitsu? So I think let's start with what it means to be trauma-informed in general. So mm. trauma. This is the quick breakdown I can give, even though this has been extensively studied. The English word trauma comes from the Greek word meaning wound. So when I'm asked for my quick and easy definition of trauma, it's any unhealed human wound, mm. whether it be physical, mental, emotional, psychological, sexual, spiritual. And some wounds can heal up pretty quickly on their own with the right supportive care and time and other wounds if they're not treated or addressed can fester and infect and really keep us stuck and obviously we go into a lot more detail on this in the book that when trauma remains unhealed it can stay stuck in what is generally called the limbic system of the body uh the brain which which really plays out in the body and that is the area of the brain that we cannot easily get to with words and rational thinking. So what we were getting at earlier about its more embodied experience, mirroring, modeling, uh, being able to kind of breathe with the student if they're activated, uh, things of that nature. It's realizing that no pain, no gain, push through it is counterintuitive to what a trauma-informed response would be. A lot of trauma-informed care in general is really embracing of this idea that it's not what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you. That's kind of yielding a lot of these responses. And so how can we address our care and our interventions accordingly? So I'm of the belief that trauma-informed care is for everyone. It is not just for clinicians. It could be for the people who are your receptionists at the doctor's office. It could be for teachers, for coaches, for really anybody who works with the public having an understanding that unhealed trauma can affect human behavior, can affect learning, and then really responding accordingly in how you treat people and how you work with people. So there's a lot of different things that people can look for um, in trauma-informed schools and and that I would expect from trauma-informed instructors in the course of basic understanding of trauma, like Jamie's defining it right now. Um, and then, you know, how do I make sure that this is available to everybody, right, based on how I instruct. And, um, and I have a 31 point, Jamie and I created a 31 point checklist of things to look for so that people are not getting traumatized <laughs> um, because there are schools out there for sure uh, where you can collect some trauma if you would like to. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the most important points that I look for in people that are um, working to be good instructors are um, that they are giving choice at all times um, and then that they use a language of invitation. 
right? I'm, you know, I'm inviting you to do this, especially if a person's triggered, right? Um, you know, really kind of understanding what's right for them in that moment, because everybody's so different, right? That's one of the challenges of being trauma-informed is people often tell me, oh, okay, how can I spot somebody who's triggered? And I'll say, well, it, that's, you know, different for everybody. I can give you a long list of things to look for, but ultimately it's behavior that's different for that specific person. Um, and then, yeah, again, lots of tips. I think my top three favorites for uh, trauma survivors or people looking for a trauma-informed school are that the school is safe, uh, focus on safety first. And the way you can spot that in jujitsu specifically is that as they are teaching the techniques, they're spending just as much time on the technique as they are on telling you how to keep your bad guys safe, right? I know I'm trap and roll for, you know, as a technique where you're going to flip somebody off of you. And if you don't tell them to tuck their shoulder, you know, that's going to cause impact on their shoulder and their head. And so these instructors should be saying how you keep each other, you keep your partner safe. And if they are not explicitly explaining that stuff, um, you know, that's dangerous. And then the second point I always want to give is um, that they're delaying sparring specifically again in jujitsu, it's just ridiculous, you know, schools that are having sparring day one, that'd be like me asking you to play chess, but not telling you how the pieces move, <laughs> you know, and now your body is the piece. So, you know, I really need to be giving you some techniques or making it technique specific sparring, not just, okay, let's just go, you know, fight with whatever you've got on the mat. Like you might not even know when to tap, you don't understand that they have your ankle. Um, and then the third thing I always highlight here is um, separate street from sport. So, you know, a lot of people are, especially I think women are going to things like this because they want self-defense. And if you're teaching me sport techniques that are going to leave me open to strikes and I'm not even aware of that, you know, that's a problem. <laughs> so I think they need to get crystal clear on exactly what they're teaching so that people can make an informed choice about what it is they're wanting to learn. And one thing I want to add to everything that's been said for people listening to this podcast who are jujitsu instructors or kickbox instructors, any kind of a martial art instructor, something I have heard through the years is, well, we really don't teach classes that are like focused for mental health or focused for survivors. And something we uncover in the book is if you look at conservative statistics, one in three women have been assaulted sexually in some way in the US, one in five men, and I've long taught that's probably an underestimation because men are not so likely to report. So even if you're teaching a class for the general public, there is a very high probability you're going to be working with traumatized people and things that often get just kind of written off as an overreaction or they're, they're zoning out or they're checking out is very likely a trauma response. And Georgia, something you've said that's really stuck with me through this whole interview, I, I think a lot of what we're calling in the book trauma-informed jujitsu principles are just really good education principles anyway, because it's all about how you work with the human brain with dignity. Absolutely. I look forward to the day, I say this often, I look forward to the day where we don't have to add the trauma-informed title to the right. you know to the start of what <laughs> we're teaching I have people ask me you know I haven't experienced trauma but I like the sound of the way you teach people can I come of course mm -hmm. of course well, absolutely yeah. it's a human-centered approach that's you know at the end of the day what we're talking about doing you think about what Anna right just said teach people how not to hurt themselves. Well, at the very least, that's financially viable for you because you're going to have students who don't pause their memberships because they're not injured. You know, don't get people sparring from day one. Again, 
the highest point of turnover for people in jujitsu is early days where they you know, feel like they get quite beaten up on the mats, not literally beaten up, but they feel like they're losing. They're stuck on the bottom of Mount in these feeling the positions where they feel quite compromised over and over again. It's hard to want to keep coming back after you do that. So even from a business perspective, it's a good idea to be more trauma informed. You're going to retain more students. If that's what gets would... people interested, go with it. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty Absolutely. sure the listeners of this podcast are not the kind of people that we need to be preaching that to. So I always try and keep that in mind. If if you're listening to this podcast, you you do want to be a more conscious combat athlete, coach, wherever your your position is, that's for sure. You know, there's another funny thing about this word trauma too, and it's that um, you know, it always amazes me how sophisticated and unsophisticated our brains are. Um, and, uh, trauma is stored in funny ways in the brain. And I know I've had a number of people in the, in the Gracie, uh, world come to me and talk to me about, you know, I was fine for years. I was even a jujitsu instructor for years. And then all of a sudden I'm like triggered so much and I'm having panic attacks and all kinds of stuff. And I don't even know where it came from. Um, and then I, you know, talked about the fact that our limbic brain, which is the filter for everything, um, oftentimes doesn't do a great job of even letting our conscious brain know some of the things that we've been through. And, um, you know, and I always give this silly example as if you punched me in the face right now, and I happen to be eating an orange, you know, I might be really startled, I might go in eight, nine, 10. And if I go into eight, nine, 10, my, you know, prefrontal cortex starts shutting down. And my limbic brain will register that as orange, bad, you bad, <laughs> getting punched, hurt, but it won't connect those pieces. They'll be like little fragments just kind of floating separately. So later on in life, I could literally be in a room and somebody's eating an orange and all of a sudden I get agitated. Ooh, I don't want to be here. I don't like this. And not even connected to the orange, not even know that it was the orange, not alone that the orange was connected to the punch to connected to the whatever. Um, and, and so, uh, and a lot of times those things can now be triggered on the mats because this person's cologne or that position or this pressure here brought the memory all of a sudden to the forefront. So, um, you know, people that don't even think they've had anything uh, sometimes can now with this intimate, really close interactions, all kinds of cool stuff is coming up. And I say cool just because I think that, you know, once it's, it's there, then we can actually, man we can do something you know, versus when it's kind of hidden away and we don't even know that the orange is there kind of thing. I love that. I love that. I love that story. At the start, I was like, where is this going? <laughs> but it's a really, really good way to explain that. And, you know, healing work goes both ways. On the one hand, it's terrible the things that people in our world have experienced. Um, on the other hand, as we heal from those things and we raise our level of consciousness our vibration however you conceptualize that our state of being that ripples out too you know so it's not just that you know when you see the cascade of when people are triggered on the mats and triggered is on a spectrum as well too so sometimes sure. that will manifest as something like someone's cologne or even just accumulation of a poor night's sleep with a stressful day of work can lead someone to respond to maybe a, a tap where they tapped 
as a direct threat to their ego that they need to then go to battle for and they go into a flight a fight mode which then leads to maybe a falling out between those two people um and you know the next person that they go and train with as opposed to someone who starts to have an awareness of where their window of tolerance is, where they're at on the scale, whether they're triggered, and then also how their training partner's feeling and can check in with them. And I notice something like, oh, I'm rolling with Jamie and and now I'm noticing that they're not breathing, you know? Ah, mm-hmm. oh, well, I might just like stop and check in with them instead of plowing through that moment to keep going with my submission and like what a beautiful world where we do that and starting to hear reports of that from various people in various schools around the world and isn't that just the most amazing thing to be able to do for someone else yes yes (laughs) it's it's incredible put yeah so much healing happening so much respect so much love and care I mean how could it it, it, you know, for the people that don't train, they really don't get what you're saying. They, you know, especially in America, it's jujitsu is UFC, and I'm like, no, it's the gentle art. It's loving your partner. It's paying attention to each other. It's, I'm like, it's an hour and a half long hug. It's a tactical hug. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I love tactical hug. We normally call it aggressive cuddles, but I love tactical hug. I like, I've heard both. Yes, <laughs> both well put. I want to come back to your book because I think it is such a wonderful resource and there are so many uh, practical things that uh, practitioners, jujitsu practitioners, counsellors, therapists and survivors can implement for themselves. And I pulled out just a couple to throw out to the, the audience so that they can be like, oh, that's a good one. I want to go and find some more. And one that stood out to me, which I had never thought about, was this idea of teaching in triads. Now we're getting quite specific, right? So teaching in groups of threes instead of in pairs so that it's really easy for someone to sit out when they need to, watch when they need to. And I think the perception is generally, you know, if there's a group and there's an odd number, there's going to be one group of three. And people, I think, who especially are more experienced are often thinking, I don't want to be in the group of three, then I'm going to have to spend time just watching and not practicing. And certainly that's how I felt sometimes. But the reframe and thinking about the value that comes from having the opportunity to implement choice and sit out, I think is wonderful. And I was just that that's so easy for instructors to say, all right, if I'm teaching a new class, we do groups of threes instead of pairs. Um, And so I was wondering if there are any other like favorite, we've kind of already touched on some, especially from you, Anna, but um, tactics or tips for coaches who are listening that they can implement. Hmm. Good one. You know, I, I, one of the things that I think I really struggled with um, was language. Mm. So um, even the permission to say, um, you know, right now, I, if I put your hands on my shoulder instead of my neck, I'd like you to put your hands on my shoulder or I'm ready for you to put your hands on my neck or I'm ready for you to actually apply pressure. Um, you know, a lot of people, regardless trauma or not, don't realize that they can, you know, say what they need, you know, what they're, they're wanting in that moment and where they want to start training. And instructors oftentimes have to invite people to, to say that you can say what you need. Um, you know, you decide 
uh, how much pressure you want in that moment. And PS, it's really good to start with nothing at first so that you can really perfect technique before you have somebody like wringing your neck, right? Um, you start slow so that you, you, you really are clean with your technique and you know the leverage piece and it's not just strength that you're trying to like rip out a hand. Um, and, but I, I felt like in the beginning, I wasn't quite equipped for that. And over time I, I gathered a lot of language and, and, a, and give myself permission to ask for what I needed for my part. Hey, can you show me that again? I don't know what happened there. Can you show me how to get out of that? Can you slow down? Um, I'm not at hundred percent today. Um, you know, can we go at 50% or, or whatever that is? Lots of examples from teachers and language. I think something I'd want to highlight from both my experience as a student, from my role as, as a teacher of some embodied arts is to make sure there is continual emphasis on breath. Uh, we had the fortune for the book of interviewing Marty Josie, who is a uh, developer. Is it Jorsey or Josie, Anna? I always forget. I think it's um, Josie. Josie, yeah, he's the developer of a, a, a nurse who's a jujitsu player, developed breathing for BJJ, and I'm really glad to get his perspective in there. Because something that I, I teach, especially as a yoga teacher and as a clinician to my students, is holding your breath does not make it easier. Mm -hmm. That when you've been traumatized and go into that, especially a hypervigilant response, the breath shallows up. And so when faced with threat, it can be very easy and natural to hold the breath. And what fascinated me is I spent so much time before coming to jujitsu practice, really learning how to breathe properly in a yogic sense. And then once I got into all these new scenarios, like aggressive cuddles in jujitsu, I had this tendency to just keep holding up my breath. And I'm really grateful that Micah just kept issuing those gentle reminders, like, where's the breath and keep the breath flowing. And then I even started taking some Muay Thai and some standard boxing with him. And it was the same thing that I, I loved to box with him, but I had this tendency to really like hold my breath <laughs> instead of breathe into things. And I think there's, there's valuable opportunity there for life lessons. And it's something that jujitsu instructors are really in a powerful position to address uh, gently with their students. I, I would add one more thing to uh, that I think is particularly important um, sometimes for women too, um, and that's the gi. Um, that that gi, <laughs> this gi <laughs> can really be hot and stifling, and you know maybe even claustrophobic and weird. And sometimes the gis are not even made to fit women. I think they're designed a lot of them to fit men. Um, they're not shaped for our bodies necessarily. I think they're trying to do a better job at that now. Um, but one of the things I really appreciate about the program that I was in with women specific, um, we wore the gi pants, um, but then we wore a t-shirt on top. And, you know, I think it helped us step into, and then as we went to master cycle, yeah, now you're going to wear the gi. Um, but, you know, any sort of choice and flexibility instructors and gyms can give to things like that, I think are going to help people feel safer. And, you know, we, we say in the book too, it's, you know, it's not about avoiding every little trigger. Uh, we do have to face triggers in our world. Um, but when we're first starting, we would like to have as least of those, you know, <laughs> the minimal amount so that we can get them in the door um, and then gradually increase the exposure to things that are uncomfortable. So I understand, you know, the idea of a uniform, 
Um, but many choices in their uniform are actually uniforms that fit women would be nice. <laughs> Large chested women too. I mean, that was a lot of my, my struggle. Yeah. Yeah, they now have some brands with um, just in the same way that there's like A1L geese, there's now like F1C, I think, which is curvy, uh, which is really, really wonderful to see that those that. are starting to come nice. out. Yeah, yeah. I'll try and send you a link after the podcast about there's a, I don't know if they might even be an Australian company, but I think it's becoming a bigger thing. Um, I want to come back to the breath. Because the breath is, for me, such an interesting topic and it's quite nuanced in the way that when when I work with clients, I'll often introduce the breath as being something that works for a lot of people and can actually be quite scary for some people. For some people, mm-hmm. focusing on their breath is quite a stress. And I think yes. a lot of that comes from the typical language that instructors who are really well-meaning will use which will be something along the lines of just breathe just breathe keep breathing just breathe which is right but I think some people are like okay I need to think about the breath more and as well-meaning as you might be then they'll say to someone you know just breathe or you know something that makes people realize more I am not breathing makes them focus on their inhale which of course drives up their sympathetic nervous system and makes them feel more stressed and so I think you alluded to it already Jamie, some of the the language that Micah was using around, and you know, if you notice you're holding your breath, you might want to let it go, or you know, mm-hmm. come back to the breath. You might like to come back to the breath. That distinction is really important. Let me get on my soapbox about that, if I may, because yes, <laughs> we teach this in trauma informed yoga, especially that one of the biggest things well intentioned instructors will say is just breathe, and kind of in a nasty way, or if it's like breathe and. Like if if I could, I would. So I'm I'm really glad you you drew attention to that. Personally, I feel the best thing an instructor, a therapist, a yoga teacher can do is to model breath. When mm. they notice a student is holding their breath, that if they themselves take a nice deep breath, that that modeling that that idea of working with mirror neurons can be great. But yeah, like what we'll say is a simple in, out, in, out. Or can you check in with the breath? What's the breath doing right now? Um, and sometimes I'll just say with my students, gentle reminder, holding your breath doesn't make it easier. Uh, Buddha's teaching was as I breathe in, I know I'm breathing in as I breathe out. I know I'm breathing out. So I think peppering that in as a mantra through any kind of class, even if you're not directly calling out a student can be uh, a welcome invitation. Definitely. Yes. Thank you for expanding upon that. Um, did you want to add to that, Anna? Sorry. Oh, it's okay. Um, I was just thinking for me, uh, specifically that I would hold my breath on things I needed to exert myself. So if I was heading into the clinch, for example, it would be a breath holding moment. And so I learned that I needed to practice doing the opposite. So I'd actually breathe out as I went in for this. I take a deep breath. And as I went into the clinch, I would blow out. Um, and I had, um, another one of my favorite training partners, uh, Courtney tell me once Anna, just sing, because if you're singing, you can't hold your breath. So, uh, it, it was quite fun. So we'd be sparring and I'd be singing either jingle bells or Edelweiss just to be sarcastic. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was really amusing trying to like break somebody's arm while you're singing jingle bells. (laughs) Oh, I love that visual. Yes, that's wonderful. (laughs) Try to add some humor here. Keep it playful, right? (laughs) 
Yes, exactly. We're not actually fighting each other. We are here to have play. And isn't it just the most wonderful opportunities as adults to integrate play as well too? Like it's hundred percent. It's really beautiful. Yeah, one of the one of the people we have mentioned a lot in the book, Mark, talks about how it's um he used to do all this wrestling with his dad as a kid and his dad would kind of fling him onto the couch, right? And then he had the same sort of sensation in jujitsu again as an adult of having that fun wrestling experience. And, you know, I think it's actually can be sad for women in a lot of ways as little girls, we don't always get the same opportunity to wrestle around that a lot of little boys are offered and maybe that's changing now. Um, but I, I think I felt that for the first time, sort of a freedom to like wrestle and play and, and be almost silly and, you know, uh, using your body in that way that a lot of times I think girls haven't been allowed to do. Yes, definitely. We, I think I've spoken a lot to instructors who would be listening to uh, this podcast and certainly there's a lot more information in the book in much the same way. There are a lot of pieces of advice for survivors looking for gyms, planning within class. One of the things that I really liked that you suggested was this idea of having a post-training playlist, you know, that was your like default mm-hmm. easy go-to in the car to help you regulate your nervous system, decompress from, you know, the the yep. big thing, the big event, which was physically going to training. Uh, so I, I wonder if we could come to survivors and speak to, you know, some of the strategies and some of the things that they might like to have in their toolkit, as you reference, as they prepare to maybe start jujitsu or go back to jujitsu. They, you know, tried and then felt like it wasn't for them, but they really wanted to, but, you know, they didn't have that toolkit in place. I mean, I think anything you can do to improve your sense of grounding or anchoring can be important. And we do cover this a lot more in the book. And grounding is a a term that's popular amongst trauma teachers and, and therapists. And it's basically using any available sense, any available experience to help anchor you into the here and now, to help kind of return you to the here and now if you feel you've lost it. And we cover some basic techniques like scanning the room with your five senses, having an anchor object in the room. Maybe there's a particular picture, like I remember seeing Elio Gracie's picture at my gym where I trained. There was something I felt very comforting about that, kind of looking up at him, or the Brazilian flag, if if I needed to. That green was a very anchoring thing for me. So you could work on those tools outside of a jiu-jitsu context, but I think once you go into a dojo or a gym, uh, having those there will be helpful for you. And thanks for the shout out to the playlist. I think playlists are great post anything, post therapy, post training, use that music. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess I would just add to that, that, you know, of course, uh, meditation is a really powerful uh, way to strengthen your mind's ability to even use those other tools. Right. I mean, it, it, sometimes it's hard to get your brain to switch to the grounding or the anchor and those things. And if you go to the, I, call, I like to call it the mental gym. If you go to the mental gym and you have a, you know, even a five, 10, 15 minute practice of having a sit and trying to get your brain to focus on your breath or, you know, even a candlelight or something like that, you're training your brain that it's going to drift, but you can bring it back. I'm going to bring you back and gently, you know, not with judgment, just with this, you know, state of curiosity and, and being gentle with yourself and bringing it back, bringing it back. And each time you do, you lift the weight and you get stronger in your ability to use all the tools. So there's that. And, and then of course, for people that are, um, trauma survivors, you know, um, you know, if they are experiencing trouble and using those tools, of course, interviewing some clinicians to be supportive as well. And I always just want to make sure to 
uh, emphasize their choice, right? I think oftentimes people just go to the first therapist that their insurance, you know, went to. And I always say, no, no, please, please interview at least three people, ask them what their approach is to, you know, people who've been through whatever you've been through and, and see who you feel comfortable with. So you have those supports in place should you need them and you've got the name and number. I have a question for both of you that I was thinking a lot about as I was reading the book and you might not have an answer because it's a really big question and problem at the moment that might be more specific to Australia where the demand for therapists and psychologists at the moment significantly outweighs anything we've we've precedently experienced whereby the average wait time here to see a clinician is three months and so oftentimes it's it's whoever you can get in with uh, but as a as an instructor, it's really difficult to have a referral network because well, my, my top five referrals are really good. And so they're really popular and it's six months before I could get anyone in to see them. And at the point where somebody discloses or they feel like they need to see somebody, or maybe they, someone listening to this thinks, okay, I really struggle with meditation, but I want to start jujitsu. A lot of people are in that kind of space where sitting quietly with their thoughts is not safe for them. Um, so I want to work with somebody, but there's nobody to work with. It's just, it's really a problem. I'm I don't know that you've got any answers to it because it's a it's a significant problem that government is probably going to deal with. But it's a problem in the U.S. right now. I think yeah. the pandemic has escalated it most mm. definitely. Uh, yeah, and and I don't have easy answers for it because so many of my big answers, which I'm kind of covering in the next book, is at least in the US, but I think a lot of this applies to the UK as well. And I'm I'm sure Australia too, if we see it in, in the UK, is the way that clinicians are treated by the system, especially entry-level clinicians, there is such high turnover. The average clinical social worker, clinical counselor only lasts three years in the field. And people who probably need to be more in the national health systems are often seeing clinicians who are the most burned out, the newest, who are just not treated well by by systems. And so, so many clinicians, especially the good ones, end up going into private practice. And you're exactly right. The good ones have a huge weight. And that's something I've dealt with existentially myself as somebody who's one of the, you know, hopefully one of the better ones over the years. So I don't have any other easy answers other than I remember what a former research subject of mine said for you know a previous book, that bad therapy is better than no therapy. Mm-hmm. And there's also a movement that's really been emerging that, yes, therapy is awesome. Unfortunately, it can be a privilege in a lot of contexts, but you can still get healing in other avenues. And I think this is where jujitsu is filling a gap where good accessible yoga or exercise in the community can fill a gap. Something I tell my students all the time, and this is no lie, you can get a world-class yoga education on YouTube for free. The practice pieces are on you to do, and it might not necessarily be the safest yoga education that might need to be guided. But I, I, and this is something I really love about Henry and Eve Gracie is just how much of their material they make available on YouTube. And I've tried to really follow in suit with a lot of the meditation strategies that I do. And I just want to give a shout out to my website, traumamadesimple.com, which is a place people can go to hopefully get trauma-informed guidance in some meditation, yoga, and yoga nidra strategies. That's really, really wonderful. Um, And I think especially valued for 
Australian listeners because we have a lot of tape for the therapists here to be able to create resources like that. Um, I've tried to speak with some of my some of my favorite um, practitioners. We've thought about creating, you know, online resources, but then there's there's fear around well, what happens if something goes wrong, and and so a lot of practitioners don't feel like. They feel scared mm-hmm. to put that kind of content out there. That's what's so wonderful oh, that you have it there. That's in the U.S. Them. too. Yeah. Especially in states like California where Anna's at. And yeah, I have media insurance. You know, I, it's something I cover as, as part of my business. But And it's unfortunate society's taken us to that place. But I do think there is so much that is available out there that's that's good. That if if people can just use a little bit of safety and common sense and listening with their body, knowing okay, this feels safe to do, this is engaging me versus no, maybe I, I better go on to the next video because this feels like it's taking me into a little bit too high intensity of an area. But maybe we ought to start with the video of what's intensity. I love that question your student asked you. <laughs> what's intensity? <laughs> Yes. Thank you so much. We'll definitely put that as a resource in the show Mm -hmm. notes here. And I did notice the way that the reference to that website was um, laced throughout the book. And so I can imagine that as a compliment, that would work really well for someone who couldn't get access to a a therapist at the moment. It's why I put it there. (laughs) Absolutely. I guess the only thing I could add to what um, Jamie said so beautifully is um, I like to also have crisis hotlines available. So, you know, if people are really in a dark space, you know, they've got the, those, those phone numbers they can reach out to. I'm sure those exist in Australia too. And then I also remind people that, yeah, it's, it's different in terms of privacy, but sometimes group uh, therapy work can be just as powerful, if not more powerful sometimes uh, when working on things. Um, a lot of people I'd, I'd understand they wouldn't want to start there, <laughs> um, but it is a, another you know, another avenue and oftentimes the wait times are not as bad for getting into uh, support groups of various kinds. Yes, definitely. I am starting to wrap towards the end of our conversation because I want to be super respectful of all of your time. Uh, But I feel like your book, this conversation really speaks to a really exciting time in the in the martial arts space. And since I started this podcast two years ago, I've been saying in five years, trauma-informed jujitsu, kickboxing, boxing is going to be more well-recognized. It's going to be on par with trauma-sensitive yoga, which I think most people have some sort of an idea with. And I think that right now, this moment of this book, which has just been published, is a turning point in that shift towards us starting to see martial arts as healing modalities, which so many people just inherently experientially have already engaged with. But the fact that we've added trauma-informed as a framework around it does make it significantly more accessible for a lot of folks. And so it's just like a really slow clap, exciting moment that this is a pivot, I think, towards that what well, was two years ago that I was saying in five years, so in three years, then I think this is going to be a type of thing that's really common, right? Well, to that point, and this is probably a good time to thank our publisher, North Atlantic Books, who had the faith in this. Uh, they published David Emerson and Elizabeth Hopper's Overcoming Trauma with Yoga back in 2011. And that was really one of the first books at the forefront of the trauma-informed yoga movement. 
And I actually pitched that we write a book that was similarly structured to that, where we did reach out to survivors and instructors and clinicians because they did a similar thing in that book. So may your comment continue that manifestation and evolution. I love it. I want to ask you both the question that I ask everybody who comes on this podcast, which is why do we so often hear people saying things along the lines of jujitsu saved my life? Hmm. And you might answer personally or hypothetically for the world or clients at large. You can answer it any way you would like. It's, it's a great question because I will say a lot of things saved my life. 12 Steps saved my life. Yoga saved my life. EMDR saved my life. Of course, Jiu-Jitsu saved my life. And I, I, I think for me, at the time in my life where I found it, especially having a lot of those things previous, it really enhanced the quality of my life. And I, I so I think it's no stretch at all to, to say that. Um, speaking to my, my, my son, technically my former stepson, but he's my son who was the one who really introduced me to jujitsu. I saw it completely transform his life. I don't know if he would say jujitsu saved his life, but he would say definitely changed his life. Mm. Um, I think because we are inviting the body into such a transformative process as, as we open the book with transform in English literally means to change form that, that we change these shapes with our bodies but that could issue or bring in a transformation, a shift, a change in the whole body-mind complex, which is just a cool thing. Misty agrees. This is my cat who's here. <laughs> She's probably picking up on the mic. Thank you. Thank you, Misty. Um, you know, and this might be a good time for me to mention the disclaimer um, because, you know, just again, I always want to emphasize, be careful of the school. We're talking about all these great things, but really, really everybody needs to uh, respect themselves and, you know, to be sensitive to their needs and, and, you know, don't substitute, substitute anything we're saying on this tonight for, you know, medical advice or, um, you know, you check in with your own doctor. Um, because I do think at a different point in my life, at a different school, this would not have changed my life necessarily for the better. I think that aggressive nature of mine would have me uh, heading straight into the most aggressive school. Uh, where I definitely would have received more trauma. Um, but for me, you know, I was a seasoned client before I got to jujitsu and worked a lot on my own trauma and complex trauma. And so I was kind of shocked uh, when my own triggering happened on the mats. And, um, and I quickly figured out what it was. And I even looked up the person's face on my phone and Facebook, and I could feel all of the visceral, deep, awful feelings in my body that I had from long ago, even though I thought that I had talk therapy them away. And lucky for me, I ended up actually um, testing with the instructor who was triggering this for me. And, and I, I, miracle, happened that day. That day, um, after I tested with this person who looked a lot like the person who um, had assaulted me, um, when I finished that test, I went and looked up their photo again on my screen and all of the feelings in my body that were there before were gone. It was just gone. It was like somebody took a big eraser and erased it. And I just sort of instinctively looked at him as if I were speaking to him on my phone. I was like, you can't hurt me anymore, part one. Part two, I forgive you. Mm. And I was finally able to let go of the stuff 
that I could never let go of before. And I think it was because I had to feel safe. I had to complete the story that was in my body before I could go to a place of forgiveness. You know, and even as a clinician, I, I've struggled for years of trying to understand what forgiveness was or how to help my clients get it. And, you know, and it wasn't till that moment that I could do that because how am I going to forgive you if I still don't feel safe that you can hurt me? I have to feel safe first. Then my brain can be busy about letting go of stuff until then it has to stay vigilant, right? It has to stay vigilant to keep me safe. So it was profound to let go. I mean, massive baggage just, falling off <laughs> that day. Um, and I don't, I don't even know how to put words to how monumental that was. It's just incredible. Um, and there was no way through it in talk therapy. My body had to learn that it was safe in this world and it could let go. Wow. I appreciate you both coming on so, so much. Your huge contribution to the world at large that will flow on from the work that you have done and I'm sure will continue to do in this space. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of time to say where people can find you, where they can buy the book, all that good stuff. So the book, uh, if you just enter in Transforming Trauma with Jiu-Jitsu, it'll come up wherever it's practical for you to buy it. It's on all the online retailers. And since you have an international audience, I would say just Google the book title. Um, I mean, if you're an Amazon user, you can get it directly through Penguin, who's our distributor for North Atlantic Books. Indie Books uh, has, has it as well. Um, probably the easiest website to give listeners is what I mentioned, traumamadesimple.com, because that's where all the resources are. And then it links to my other projects and my personal website online. Amazing. It can be found at uh, Warren Hart Counseling Center uh, or in Psychology Today. Uh, we'll connect directly to my phone. So Wonderful. We'll put the links to all of that, links to the book, into the show notes so people can uh, start reading and get all those extra bits of, of wisdom and those practical advice um, pieces that you put through the book are really, really wonderful. It's not just a theoretical book. I feel like it is really well balanced between what you would do and, you know, how to think about this concept of trauma-informed jujitsu. Thank, Thank you for, you for having, having us, us, Georgia. Thank you for your work. Really appreciate you. Have you thought of something to be grateful for today? What was it? I'm grateful for the amazing women that train with me at the Fight Back Project. I'm grateful for Nari and the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. And I'm grateful for you for listening to this show and helping martial arts keep saving lives. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you'd like to leave me a review to help more people find the show, that's a bonus. shapes me but me don't gotta tell you what my name is i don't gotta explain it walk in the room hear a boom erupting like i'm famous i'm here shedding shells i'm shameless i fear nothing no complacence walk
to Many tight ropes with no hope So I became this poster they hold over All the heads of trauma holders You don't need to know my history I move boulders, Atlas shrug Cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers This goes deeper than empowerment Cause huh, I'm the one to power it Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience, meets power, meets gracious, meets. We're so glad you came in. The feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifest enough collecting all they tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders. Forgot what it was like to have control over self. Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge. Forgot in my reflection I can see all my wealth. Forgot that with my bare hands I break all these bars, barriers and obstacles. They can't cage me. They can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances. When I was truly beaten, gave myself clearances to fall down, mess up, and get myself back up. I'm not looking for clovers, cause I don't believe in luck. Damn, you were badass, I heard them say it clearly. Why, thank you very much, I know now I'm not weary of what's next for me. Cause I expect to see growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be. The positivity and accountability. Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency. I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin. Boundaries, I know them well. Take a breath and meditate. Who is she? I know her well. Now I get to open gates. One, two, one, two. I don't need your permission. And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition to know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing. And everything I do, that's me making decisions. It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth. Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth. A penny for my thoughts, no really, you can't afford it You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it, huh?